hello! Welcome back to Loki's Librarian. I am your librarian, Katrina. If you are new here, welcome. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books you see behind me, although it looks a little patchy right now. I'll explain that in a moment. Uh, but then I give you a quick synopsis of the book of the week and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. Uh, the, the library actually does fill the shelves. Um, I'm putting some into storage against the day that I have a bigger library to make room for for the books that I purchased when I fell off the book buying wagon and went on a bit of a binge last month. Um, I've always been a stress shopper and between the kitchen remodel and family drama I just kind of threw in the towel on the no book buying thing. So there it is, my sad confession. These are my new books. I actually have two piles there. They're stacked together. I gotta get them all on those shelves, hence the reason they're blank so that I can make room for them. A few weeks ago I made the comment to my husband that I think the housing market in Nevada might be stabilizing. Um, the houses that before seemed to be obnoxiously high actually seem a little more reasonably priced for our area, which prompted me to add this week's book of the week immediately to my read pile, The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine by L Michael Lewis. The accompanying cocktail is called The Big Short. It is two and a half ounces of vodka, two ounces of lime juice, and one ounce of simple syrup, which I feel like that's almost a mojito just renamed which would actually be weirdly appropriate, so I'm just going to let it go. Let's do this. So most people, when they hear The Big Short, will think of the movie, which was released in 2015, which is fair because the movie is based on the book. It, it actually, the, the sole Academy Award that it won was for Best Adapted Screenplay. It won other prizes on other things, but the Academy Awards, the big one, the Oscars, it won Best Adapted Screenplay, which now that I've read the book, makes perfect sense. See, the screenplay was an absolutely masterful adaptation of some pretty dense stuff, actually, which ultimately led to the global financial crisis. Now, having seen the movie, which I love, uh, and having now read the book, I can easily say the movie is an accurate Cliff's Notes version of the book. And I would be hard-pressed to say that the movie missed any of the big-picture drama that was encapsulated in the book. It was pretty spot-on, actually. I think it's like a well-deserved Academy Award. Two and a half ounces of vodka. Two and a half ounces of vodka. I have a feeling I'm going to run low on vodka. Ooh, I had two and a half ounces, but barely. The husband's been making some uh, Bloody Marys. That's what he likes to drink. <sighs> Killed a bottle of vodka. I will find some other vodka next. What was left out of the movie, both for brevity and clarity, is just exactly how screwed the public was as a result of this. Uh, see, the biggest thing to come out of this is that the only people to actually understand what was happening in the moment are uh, Steve Eisman, Greg Lippman, Michael Berry, uh, Charlie Ledley, Jamie Mai, and Ben Hockett. Now, some of those guys were renamed in the movies, so instead of Steve Eisman, you had Mark Baum, who was played by Steve Carell. Instead of Michael Berry, you had Christian Bale. Um, or was played by Christian Bale, excuse me, not at Christian Bale. Uh, Greg Lipman in the movie was Jared Bennett and he was played by Ryan Gosling. Uh, Charlie Ledley and Jamie Mai were Charlie Geller and Jamie Shipley played by John Magaro and Finn Whitrock and Ben Hockett was of course Ben Rickert in the movie who was played by Brad Pitt. Now, literally nobody else, including the banks incidentally, who were fronting the money for these bad mortgages, had any idea what was going on. They had no idea. They believed right up to the very bitter end that everything was going to be okay, that the housing market could never collapse. This could never, ever happen uh, because it's never happened before, sort of. Like, reference the 1930s. Two ounces of lime. 
two ounces of lime juice. Even a decade after the fact, since the housing crisis was 2007, 2008, so we're looking at 15 years later, still have no idea what really happened. So I'm gonna try and break this down for you. And this is some pretty dense stuff. I think I understood most of it. Um, and the movie's an excellent reference. Like if you're really lost, that is a good one. But this is not a movie review channel. So let's see what I can pull out of the book here for all of us, okay? So everything that happened does go all the way back to the 1970s when Louis Ranieri started packaging mortgage not, mortgages not as standalone products, but as packaged bonds. All right, hold on, let me back that up even just a little bit further here. Let's get some basic terminology going so that everybody knows what I'm referencing stocks versus bonds because very few people know what the difference is between a stock and a bond. Actually, let me get my cocktail done here so I have something to drink while we're talking about this because this is some dense stuff that I need to pickle my brain a little to understand it. Let me shake this. All right, what is a stock? Let's start with that. All right. Um, a stock is a share of a company, and, and that, that's basically it, all right? It's a small ownership interest in a company. This is supposed to be garnished with lime and mint. That reference my above statement about the ongoing kitchen remodel. I have neither of those. I just have a well-stocked liquor cabinet. So, a stock is a piece of paper that says you believe in a company so much that you want to own a portion of it relative to the amount of stocks you own. Now, for simplicity's sake, I'm going to keep these in very whole numbers because stocks are sold in the millions, not in the very simple 10,000 shares of Mouse Company I'm going to talk about right now. So let's say Mouse Company releases 10,000 shares of its company. It's looking for people to invest only 10,000 shares ever because my math is not good enough to go into the millions that are actually traded every day. Um, you think that Mouse has a pretty good basis. You think they're going to do pretty well, so you buy 100 shares, meaning you now, now own 1% of Mouse Company. But being the smart investor you are, you're not going to put all of your eggs in one basket. You're going to diversify. So you look around to see what else you can buy, and you see that Cat Company is also releasing 10,000 shares. Now, having done your homework, because you're a good investor and you're, you're a smart cookie, you're going, to do, you're going to decide that cat company is going to be even better than mouse company because cats are, of course, better than mice. Cats eat mice. Uh, so you're going to buy 1,000 shares, meaning that you now own 10% of cat company. Now, the stock market is heavily regulated. I believe a big portion of that regulation has to do with some stock market shenanigans, which are not explicitly discussed in this book, but are kind of referenced back to Lewis's previous book, which was called Liar's Poker. Haven't read that one, but it's kind of on my, you know, to buy list now that I'm off the wagon. You now own 11% total of two separate companies, 10% in cat, 1% in mouse. That's the stock market. It's heavily regulated. The stock traders have to have desk phones. Those desk phones can and are recorded and will be monitored by the SEC to make sure that nothing hinky is going on. Now, bonds are an entirely different kettle of fish. We're just going to keep adding animals to the equation here. That's very, very like a mojito here. Now, a bond from Investopedia.com is, quote, a fixed income instrument that represents a loan made by an investor to a borrower, typically corporate or government. Now, assuming my reading comprehension is up to par and has not, in fact, been completely pickled by cocktail juice, what Louis Ranieri did is repackage mortgage loans, which are typically private affairs between an individual and a bank, 
into larger bonds, which were then traded like stocks, but are not stocks, and so are not regulated. Do you see the problem? And usually not one for government regulation, but man, there's a strong argument made for it for after reading this book. Basically, multiple mortgages go into a bond. Not just any bond, they were re regulated into like corporate bonds, basically. So if you get a loan from Bank of America, then other loans made by Bank of America to other mortgage holders might all get packaged into one big bond. Ideally. Not quite what happened. I am going to come back to that. Now, those bonds could then be traded similar to stocks. All right. So that, that's basically where we're at as far as my understanding of it goes. I think part of the reason is that they're, they represent liabilities, which is money owed, rather than assets, which is ownership in a property or in a company. But it's not quite accurate either because there are assets involved, right? The houses are physical assets. If you get a car loan, that car is a physical asset. Um, it's a liability at first, but you have an asset. It's something that if you default, the bank can repossess. So it is an asset, but it's an asset against which you owe a great deal of money, which is why it's just not quite as regulated. See the confusion? I'm still, I, I'm almost positive I have that right, but if I'm wrong, I'm sure somebody will tell me eventually. Now, because a bond is typically between an investor and a corporation, not between an investor and a single individual, it was like the Wild West out there. Nobody knew what was being packaged and sold to where. But the central characters of the Big Short recognized the, the Iceman and the Burry and the, the Corn, Cornwall Fund, which was I think it was Brownfield in the movie, but it's in reality it was the Cornwall Fund. What they did is they recognized well before the rest of the world woke up that the mortgages being put into these bonds were being sold off or closed, paid off at an alarmingly fast rate, which sounds good on the surface, right? I mean, somebody takes out an enormous loan for a house and pays it off in short order. That's awesome, all right? Except that it wasn't the homeowner that was paying off the mortgage. So what would happen is... Uh, Basically, I'm going to use an example here from my own home buying thing. We bought our house, and initially the bank that backed us was Bank of America. And about three months later, Bank of America sold our mortgage to a different company, which results in Bank of America's books showing that the mortgage was paid in full. Not because I paid off the balance, but because Carrington Mortgage paid off the balance for me, basically buying the debt that I owed from, to Bank of America I now owe to Carrington. I, the mortgage isn't gone, it's still there. I just owe it to a different bank than who originated it. This raised multiple flags for the big short crowd because if it's not the homeowner paying off those mortgages, that means that they're, they don't actually have the money to do so. So where are these loans coming from that are being sold to people who, or, or being made to people who can't pay them off, right? My example, of course, used individual banks. We had Bank of America, we had Carrington Mortgage. What was happening in reality is that individual money managers running bonds desks at various large financial institutions were buying these mortgages wholesale from banks and then packing them into these things called collateral, collateralized debt obligations or CDOs. Now, these are not entirely new. In, in financial markets, these were a spin-off of something called an asset-backed security or ABS, which means almost exactly what it sounds like. It's an investment backed by a pool of debt, but it's that that pool of debt has something tangible tied to it, like a, an auto loan or a home equity line of credit, meaning that if you default, they can come in and they can repossess the car. They can come in and attach a lien to your house. So it has something actually attached to it. These home equity lines of credit, though, eventually became part of the bigger problem because 
a lot of it was just numbers on paper and that the money was there, but nobody, it was moving so fast they couldn't track who had what. And that just created more confusion and added to the problem. So the big short crowd realized that the reason all these mortgages were being paid off or being sold off almost immediately after the ink was drying out of the contract is because the mortgages themselves were bad and they were being packaged into these CDOs, these collateralized debt obligations, to clear them off the bank's books fast and transfer the liability to somebody else as quickly as possible. So it might originate with a small mortgage provider and then be sold off to the Morgan Stanleys, the Bear Stearns, the Lehman Brothers, who didn't look at the underlying loans and see if they were good. They look at the packaged bond to see in the packaged bonds, the packaging, packaging is where these things went bad. And again, I'm going to come back to that in just a little bit. So for example, of some of these phenomenally bad loans, Lewis points out where um, at least one story of a migrant worker who was making $14,000 per year was approved for a $750,000 home loan. Now, it's really easy to blame the migrant worker, right? Really easy. Why'd you sign on the line? You only made $14,000 a year. What made you think you could afford a three-quarter of a million dollar house? Except, and this is really important to understand because, believe me, when all this went down, I was very much wondering, well, why'd they sign on the line if they didn't know what they were signing, right? The people submitting the loan paperwork were lying to the banks. They were lying to the people they were making the loans to because they were getting paid enormous bonuses for originating these mortgages. Didn't matter if the mortgage was good or bad, just the fact that they were originating them got them huge bonuses at the end of their, their month or their quarter or their, their you know, biannual, yeah, biannual loans. So they had a very strong vested financial interest to sign as many mortgages as they could, regardless of the borrower's ability to pay. And they would obfuscate what was being signed on using very fancy terminology like adjustable rate mortgage. And no, no, this is a teaser rate. This is a teaser rate, but they never actually explained what that meant. And what a teaser rate is, is you might only pay 1% interest per year for the first two years, and then it goes up. You get a balloon payment. Now, not mentioned in the book, like explicitly, it's kind of touched on, but it's just as important is congressional complicity. All of this was perfectly legal, not just because Congress didn't understand what was going on any more than the bankers understood what was going on. It was legal because of the creation of Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae back in the 1970s and 80s, which basically said the government wants everybody to have housing because housing Everybody has a right to own a home. That's, that's part of the American dream. So go ahead and make the loans and we'll back the mortgages. Mortgage loans were made by lenders, which then freed up cash from, and then the government backed them. They freed up more cash to loan more money. All of this led to the banks with congressional approval seeking ways to get more people into homes. And why wouldn't they? The government's backing the money. It's guaranteeing these bills will be paid. None of the legalities are mentioned in the book. None of the fact that, that this was all perfectly legal under Congress and under the laws as they stood at the time is mentioned. I'm just kind of riffing here. Now, the banks, while they didn't really understand the monster they were creating, did understand basic risk assessment. They knew that somebody with a FICO score of 500 and no real income would never be able to qualify for a 30-year fixed low interest rate mortgage. Triple A rated mortgages with high FICO and great income was a finite resource. Not everybody has it. Not everybody could qualify for those mortgages. But the government is leaning on them 
for housing everybody, right? Housing is a right. Everybody has a right to home, own a home in America. And the bank, sensing that government money, those sweet, those sweet, sweet greenbacks, took that ball and ran with it. And that's those adjustable rate mortgages. So you have those teaser rates with the balloon payments, which means basically you're only paying like $400 a month to start with until you get a balloon payment of $30,000, $40,000, and your interest rate suddenly 11, 12, 15%, which causes the mortgage payment to skyrocket and mortgage defaults rise. Now, a large portion of these bad loans, and understand it's not just the, the, the I mean, the migrant worker story stands out because who the fuck gives a loan of three quarters of a million dollars to somebody who only makes $14,000 a year. But these loan, bad loans could also include loans with no documentation. And I don't mean undocumented immigrants. I mean, they wouldn't check the buyer's income. They might not even check the buyer's ID, but they wouldn't verify anything. There were just un, no document loans that would have a 0% interest rate to start with until suddenly they didn't. So all of these loans, or not all of them, but a good a significant portion of them were made in 2005 with teaser rates for one to two years. So in 2007, 2008, the bad mortgages started happening. People started defaulting en masse because suddenly they, they don't have $30,000 saved up for a balloon payment with a new mortgage from $400 a month to $2,000 a month. Nobody had, I mean, the average American just didn't have that kind of money. The, the four states, which was designated as the sand states, which for this little fiasco, meaning this is this was the shifting house of sands, they had the highest highest rate of mortgages, the, the highest uh, housing prices, and so they were the hardest hit when all of this fell, were California, Florida, Arizona, and my own state of Nevada. Uh, Las Vegas would eventually become a major nexus of default mortgages. That's included in the book, so go team Nevada. The big short crews saw the writing on the wall and starting with Michael Burry created a market called a credit default swap or CDS. Now these were actually not entirely new, but it was new to do them on the bond market. Usually you short stocks, meaning you think a company's price is going to fall. Credit default swaps were a new thing for a bond market. So, and basically what it is, is insurance. It's insurance on a bad loan. They were betting that the owners of the CDOs, that those loans were going to go bad. And insurance was incredibly cheap. So, for example, $100,000 in credit default swaps would net $5 million when all, of this, when all these loans went bust. Just for example. It's an enormous increase in, price, in profit, right? So, to bastardize the example from the book, they were buying fire insurance on the CDOs, waiting to sell that insurance back to the banks who own the CDOs once the CDOs were actually on fire. Got it? Yeah. I know. It's very confusing, right? But the thing is, none of the owners of the CDOs believed it would ever happen. Never thought it would go up in flames like that. And how? How could they not see what the big short crew saw? Well, see, averages. The, the people who took the short position on this, every single one of them did their research on these CDOs to see what went into them. And what they saw was each CDO was comprised of tranches. So what the fuck is a tranche? Maybe tranche. I might be mispronouncing that. A, a tranche is just, it just means a slice. It's a slice of something. It's a French word. It just means slice. In this case, a slice of the mortgage market. Now, tranches were rated triple A, which was what was being sold back and forth by the CDOs, uh, were composed almost exclusively of triple B mortgages. 
and the Big Short crew did their research, saw that, went, oh yeah, I want a slice of that. I want that trunch. How does something that's made entirely of triple B mortgages get rated at triple A? Well, and this is what we're referring back to. I mentioned a couple of times, I'm gonna come back to it, I'm gonna come back to it. This is here, we're back to it. This is the back to it, okay? They would take mortgages wherein the owners had a FICO score of $500 with mortgages where the owners had a FICO score of like 700, put them all into the same tranche. As long as the average FICO score of the mortgage holder in that tranche was around 618, it would be rated as AAA, even though the underlying loans were all triple B rated. So somebody who has a high FICO score might have very low income. All right. Maybe the reason their FICO score is high is because they only ever had one credit card and they paid it off religiously. And so even though they're only making $14,000 per year, for example, they have a $700 credit rating because they make their payments in full every month and that raises their FICO score. And then you with somebody who's incredibly bad with money, doesn't pay off their bills ever, but they're making more money. And so you have this average. Average is out, just like that. And once you have an average FICO score of 618 in the tranche, it's rated AAA automatically even though the underlying loans are absolute shit. And the Big Short crew did their research, did their homework, saw this, and bet against those. They said, those are going to default. I want to buy insurance on that default. And the owners of the CDOs were like, these are AAA rated. There's no way they're going bad. Until they did. And all it took for this house of cards to collapse was 7% of the mortgages to fail. 7% is a very low number. And all it took for failure was for home prices to stop rising. That's it. Just that level in the market, just it stopping going up, everything leveling out. As long as the prices are rising, there's a chance that the homeowner might be able to refinance into a fixed mortgage loan. Um, Or they might even be able to sell it to somebody else for more than they bought the house for, which gets them out from under. But as soon as the housing market stabilizes, loans become defunct. Because if you try to sell a house for less than you owe on it, you still owe the balance. So if you owe 200, that, that's what a, a short sale is, right? If you owe a balance of, if you owe $250,000 on a house and you're only able to sell it for 200000 the holder of your mortgage still wants that 50000 remaining. I mean, they loaned you the two hundred fifty dollars They expect two hundred fifty dollars They'll get two hundred from the sale. They still want that 50K. So when the housing prices stopped rising, the market collapsed. Spectacularly, horrifyingly, like mind-boggling collapses to the tune of over $5 trillion in assets that were wiped out, not just in the housing market, but 401Ks, retirement plans, everything was gone. Several banks did, of course, go under, most notably Bear Stearns and the Lehman Brothers. And of course, as we all know, the U.S. government stepped in, at least stateside here, and started picking their winners and losers, determining who should sell and to who, and guaranteeing bad assets owned by the losers to incentivize the winners to make the buy. Which is how, like, J.P. Morgan Chase ended up buying, I think it was Bear Stearns, but I might be wrong. It was in the book. All of this is on taxpayer dollars, by the way. Every time the government gives money away, whether it's to the Ukraine or to J.P. Morgan Chase, they do so using money that we, the people, gave them in the form of our tax dollars. You're welcome. Uh, the true horror of all this, though, 
is that the only losers of this whole sorry story are the common man, the common taxpayers, not just in America, but globally. This was a global crisis. As Lewis says in the book, quote, what are the odds that people will make smart decisions about money if they don't need to make smart decisions, if they can get rich making dumb decisions, end quote. By September 2008, the U.S. government had stepped in and created TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program. This was a bailout they used to save the bankers, giving them millions of dollars, while the Americans, who were completely screwed in these fraudulent deals, got nothing and were left homeless, jobless, with no resources and no recourse. So why am I so sure that they were in fact screwed and that it was the corrupt as fuck bankers who did the screwing, not the migrant worker making $14,000 per year who willfully and blindly walked into a deal he had no business making? Um, Because again, I I was one of those people back in 2008 going, well, I should have read the fine print. You know, don't, don't, you know, sign a contract without reading it. And then of course I bought my own house and you think I actually read every single page of that document? No, I took it on faith that I was signing what I was told to sign in good faith. And now that I've done it, it's a little bit scarier. Let's look at the incentives. Like I said, the bankers got enormous bonuses, all backed by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae and their own corporations for making these loans. And the migrant worker had no earthly reason to lie. I mean, yes, he gets a house, but it's unlikely that he was homeless before. Most of the, most migrant workers aren't homeless. They have houses. They have rental properties that they pay their landlords, or they might live in trailers on site and even RVs. doesn't matter. It's not like they're, you know, living in the alleys of Los Angeles and then driving out to the country to pick fruit during the day. They're hard, they're hard workers. They have houses. They have families. The balance of power in this case was with the mortgage brokers. They had no business making such preposterous loans and should absolutely have been jailed for their complicity in the fraud. And instead, the government rewarded them. One of Morgan Stanley's bonds traders, who was in this up to his eyeballs, lost Morgan Stanley $9 billion, which is the single biggest loss in Wall Street history. $9 billion from one guy. And he was able to keep his $26 million bonus. And Congress, fucking Congress, rather than interviewing the people who saw it coming, you know, the the big short bondholders, the... the the, the Eismans and the Burries and the, the Cornwall capital people, Congress called um, author Michael Lewis to explain it to them. And he kept saying, no, interview Burry, interview Eisman. Congress wanted him, the author of the book, who learned everything that he could, what he could of this, from Burry and Eisman and Hockett. And to this day, no one on Wall Street, no one in Congress can really explain how all of this happened. And the easiest explanation is corporate greed. And, and I get that, all right? It's, it's a wholly justified explanation here. This was some horrific stuff. Again, the only people who lost were the American people. The banks, the Morgan Stanleys, the JP Morgans, the HSBC, they all got money on this. And of course, the big short crew got money on this. Um, I mean, it certainly explains why the generation that were children when all of this happened grew up to be staunch socialists. I mean, it's very easy to point the finger at schools and say, yeah, of course, schools are teaching socialism. Of course, they're all socialists. And, and there's some truth to that. I mean, no, nothing happens in a vacuum and nothing is, it's not an all or nothing. It's not an either or proposition. Multiple factors contribute here. But the other side of that truth is they watch their parents struggle with this. They watch their parents lose their houses from greedy corporations with the government just 
doing nothing. And, um, and then they're taught in the schools, well, the government couldn't do anything because it's all capitalism. Yeah, of course they grow up to be socialists, right? All they saw was the government stepped in and rescued people. There was a bailout. People were able to keep their jobs. Doesn't mention that the people who kept their jobs were the bankers who started all of this. Just that the government stepped in and saved them. It's never discussed when talking about the events of 2007-2008. It's never mentioned that the only reason the banks survived, or excuse me, that the only reason the banks that managed to survive did so because the government handed them more taxpayer dollars and said, here you go, don't get caught again, while leaving the average American holding the bill for government largesse. A chilling line at the end of the movie uh, says, quote, in 2015, several large banks began selling billions in something called a bespoke tranche opportunity, which, according to Bloomberg News, is just another name for a CDO. And it's true. It's sadly true, which is why I'm watching the housing prices in Nevada stabilize kind of with bated breath. I mean, like on one hand, I'm like, this is my opportunity to buy a house with the dream library it's just around the corner. But at what cost? And the movie was phenomenal. For, for my money, Steve Carell stole the show. He should have won several awards for his role as Mark Baum. I mean, just phenomenal. It was so good. Uh, the book goes into a deeper dive. It provides more background as to how this all happened. And, and it was quite readable. But as Lewis says in his afterword, his challenge with this book is that he's used to writing books with kind of a comedic undertone, something that's light, slightly funny. And there's nothing funny about the collapse of the global economy. And this book is not funny. It's infuriating. And it's well worth the read. And that's it for this week. If you uh, liked what you saw, don't forget to subscribe. And I will see you guys next Sunday. Bye.